Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Uh, Two weeks ago on Saturday, October 7th, Hamas waged its brutal attack on Israel that killed more than 1,300 Israelis, while many more remain in hostage. Western leaders were quick to offer their support to Israel and condemn the actions of the Palestinian militant organization. Yet Europe's response has been jumbled. Many have taken issue with European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen's initial unqualified commitment to, quote unquote, Israel's right to defend itself without any call on Israel to respect international law in its war on Gaza, which was the position that EU members had previously agreed on. There have been similar disagreements within the EU Commission over whether to freeze aid to the Palestinian Palestinian Authority. And now, as the crisis verges towards possible escalation into a major conflict, Europe must grapple with the stakes, including not just the consequence for the region itself, but the possible ripple effects for Europe. What does it mean for Europe to have a war in the Middle East at the same time as Russia's war on Ukraine continues? to say nothing of the conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh and the flare-up in tensions between Serbia and Kosovo. To discuss all of this and more, we're very pleased to have Julian Barnes, Stacey, and Hannah Note with us on the podcast today. Welcome to you both. Thanks very much. Thank you for having us. Uh, For our listeners, quick bios. Julian is the Director of the Middle East and North Africa Program at the European Council on Foreign Relations. He works on European policy toward the wider region with a particular focus on Syria and regional geopolitics. And Hannah is the director of the Eurasia Nonproliferation Program at the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies. Her work focuses on Russian foreign policy, including Russia's relations with the Global South and the Middle East in particular. Okay, Julian, maybe we'll start with you. And I'm um, fairly confident that our Brussels Sprouts listeners are tracking what's happening more or less um, in the region and in in the conflict in particular. But I'm hoping you can give us some insight into Europe's response. And I touched on this a little bit in the intro, but it would be really helpful to hear your recounting of this somewhat discordant response and especially important to hear why that is the case. Why is this it's uh, such a divisive issue for Europe. Thank you very much, Andrea, and thank you very much for, for having me on the podcast. Um, so, so look, I, I think this has been slightly overstated and overplayed, to be honest. The, the bottom line European response has been one of, of, of what represents effective full solidarity behind Israel. Um, we've seen both member states and, uh, and the EU in Brussels really coming behind Israel immediately, um, expressing support, expressing um, a willingness to, to back up Israel's right to self-defense. Um, you know, in, in, in many respects, it, it, it's kind of, it's been both procedural and 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 in, in terms of some of the divisions. And where there has been kind of space emerging, it, it's been um, as Israel's response has come into play. And, and, and I guess there have been increasing question marks over um, the, the extent of civilian casualties and, and the risk that, that kind of the civilian population at large could be um, held responsible for this. So to, to, to just, I mean, mention a couple of things. I mean, the, the, the first issue of, of, of division, which we did see was when Oliver Vahali, the EU commissioner for, for the neighborhood and enlargement came out basically unilaterally saying, we're gonna cut all aid to Palestinians. 
Um, and, you know, within hours, we had other commissioners coming out on Twitter saying, actually, we're not going to do that. Um, and, and you don't have the right to do so. Um, and that 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 kind of bid by by Bohali, who has kind of wanted to cut aid for the Palestinians for quite some time. He's a he's a Hungarian um, commissioner quite close to the Israelis um, is not something that, that has since been implemented. And actually, the European Commission has since announced a tripling of aid um, to the Palestinians. Um, since that, that that comment. As you mentioned in the intro, Van der Leyen went to Israel. She expressed full solidarity um, with, with Israel, but she didn't touch on, on, on the kind of the notion of international law and the need, to, the need to, to have some proportionality in the military response. And that, that I guess, jarred Europeans on a couple of respects. One is there was a sense where she didn't actually have the remit to do that. Foreign policy is not where she should be um, placing herself. Um, and secondly, I guess, you know, to the backdrop of, of the conflict in Ukraine and, and the kind of commitment, the stated loud commitment by Europeans to the global-based, rules-based order, um, there was a sense of, 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 of concern that this was a bit of a strategic error um, in terms of not making that same principles clear um, in Israel. And I think, you know, there was a sense that you could both support Israel on the one hand and also be committed to to. Um, to international law on the other hand. And obviously we've seen a kind of a groundswell of increasing um, opposition to some of the Israeli military response um, in Europe and in the region. And so that came into play, including with a kind of slight concern or, or maybe even a more real concern that the Russians and the Chinese um, would be quick to exploit this and to say, look, here are the Europeans and their double standards. The region could say the same. They say one thing in Ukraine, but when it comes to Ukraine, to, to Israel, um, it's a whole different ball game. So these are some of the issues that have been at play. But I would say that the, the EU27 on Sunday released a statement stressing, stressing both solidarity to, and support for, for Israel and um, a commitment to international law. And that is really the position that they are coalescing behind now. And it's really first and foremost underpinned um, by a degree of, of uh, kind of strong support for Israel that, that actually public opinion and and others might might be questioning as, as the conflict evolves. Yeah, that's really helpful. And Hannah, I'm curious to juxtapose or compare Europe's response to that of Russia. Um, I think initially Moscow had a quite muted response, um, but I'm wondering if that's changed. I mean, it's obviously a tricky balancing act that they've had to do. And so just to hear, I know you've been watching this closely to hear how Moscow has responded to this. Sure, Andrea. I think there's there's several layers here to the Russian messaging that we've seen uh, play out since last Saturday. I mean, the first thing to note here is that Putin and other Russian officials have not missed an opportunity to point out that past American foreign policy is to blame for this crisis, that it's the U.S. Uh, monopolization of the peace process um, that has led to the situation in which this attack became became possible. And this is a sort of grievance, a long-standing grievance of the Russians. They felt really, particularly during the Trump years, um, the deal of the century diplomacy, that that was the US monopolizing the peace process. Let's not forget that Russia historically associates great power status with being involved in the Middle East peace process. And they've been a member of the Middle East Quartet. And for many years, they've called for a revival of that. So U.S. blaming is sort of one layer of the messaging. Otherwise, I'd say that Russian officials have tried to be fairly even-handed in their commentary on, on this attack. There has been no direct condemnation of Hamas or a purported Iranian role in backing this attack. 
I believe neither Putin nor the Russian MFA have actually labeled what happened a terrorist attack, which stands in contrast to Russian talking points during the Second Intifada or also during the 2014 Gaza war when the when the label terrorist was applied to Palestinian action. So I think that's quite noteworthy. Putin spoke in Bishkek last week, and he did acknowledge that Israel was subjected to an, an unprecedented attack and that Israel had the right to defend itself. But otherwise, my sense is that Russian talking points are focused a lot on the need to return to a comprehensive peace process, and they're putting a lot of focus also on civilian casualties on the Palestinian side. And that's certainly true in Russian media messaging as well. If you watch RT these days, you know, I was just in Belgrade a, a few days ago and I watched RT in the morning there, RT Balkans. The, the media coverage is almost exclusively focused on what is going on in Gaza, on the suffering of Palestinians. Um, and I think that is supposed to uh, tap into pro-Palestinian sentiments, not just across the Middle East, but perhaps across the broader global South and tap into the sentiment of Western double standards, you know, um, the West labeling Russia um, an occupier when it comes to Ukraine, but the West standing by Israel, which occupies Palestine. I think this is a sort of sentiment that exists out there and that Russian messaging is in the media uh, domain trying to exploit. But then otherwise, you know, there is this Russian effort, certainly on the diplomatic front, to be somewhat even-handed, to talk to all sides. You know, you see Deputy Foreign Minister Mikhail Bogdanov, who has the Middle Eastern file at the Russian MFA, pretty much meeting with any um, Arab ambassador that he can find in Moscow, whether it's the Iraqis, the Egyptians, the, the Qataris. Um, Lavrov has been speaking to his Egyptian counterpart multiple times. They hosted the head of the League of Arab States in Moscow. And of course, finally today, we did just have Putin speaking with Netanyahu over the phone, which took quite some time. So they are trying, I think, to walk this tightrope walk of not antagonizing Israel too much in their messaging, but I do sort of discern a, a sort of, um, I don't want to say a pro-Palestinian tilt in Russian messaging, but I, I do think that they're really trying to cater in their messaging to pro-Palestinian sentiments out there, I think, in you know, in light of, of the broader confrontation that Russia finds itself in with the West um, over Ukraine. Thanks also for me for coming on the show and, and for your your great responses to these tough questions. Uh, and But I have one for you. Uh, based on what's happened today, um, it looks like in a day or two, we're going to have another carrier battle group off of Israel. Uh, and, uh, and one thing that, that really uh, piqued my interest was that uh, Biden has decided not to go on a campaign swing, but he's going to stay in Washington to confer with his national security officials. I spent many years in the Pentagon and I recognize that. <laughs> and that usually portends things to come. Uh, and uh, it could be a hostage rescue by some special ops people off the carrier. It could be a lot of different things. And so I was wondering, um, what do you think the European reaction would be to the U.S. suddenly getting involved? I mean, it could be you know, even something bigger. It could be Hezbollah, you know, trying to push back on something there. I mean, there could be some 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 action there. And I'm wondering uh, what the European reaction would be about the United States, you know, stepping in with his big feet and stomping around. But secondly, among those in uh, NATO capitals, 
if the U.S. does get involved in that uh, uh, and we begin to use a lot of munitions and things like that, both to give to Israel and to use ourselves, suddenly we're distracted uh, from uh, from Ukraine and we're and we're digging into stuff that might have gone to Ukraine. And suddenly, if I were a European decision maker in a capital, I'd be going, uh oh, I hope there's not going to be more pressure on us to provide things. If the U.S. is going to start getting deeper into this problem there, uh, we're going to maybe have to carry more of a load with Ukraine, at least in the coming months. So what do you all think of that? And you have you heard any peep uh, in Europe about uh, about a possible U.S. military engagement and what how that would come across there? Julian, why don't you go first? Sure, happy to, to get some thoughts. Look, I think um, the general sense in Europe, and, and one that is welcomed for the moment, is that the U.S. is there in a kind of deterrence role. Um, that the idea of 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 the naval um, ships in the Mediterranean is a sense, in a sense, to act as a deterrence to, to Hezbollah and Iran getting involved and in opening up a, a northern front um, with Israel. And I think you know Europeans are very much behind that. They um, do not want to see this conflict escalate from from an Israel-Palestine conflict to a regional conflict. Um, they are very concerned about how febrile the situation is is on the north. And I think they do have a degree of trust and kind of confidence that the Biden administration is trying to prevent that that wider escalation, including, I think, because there is some sense in, in, in coming out of Israel that the Israelis themselves don't want a multi-front conflict at, at this moment. Um, and we've seen both the Israelis and the Americans playing down allegations of, of direct Iranian involvement um, behind Hamas and in launching the operation, if not in, in kind of training and, and providing back support. But I think this reflects a desire to, to, to keep the situation in check, not allow for a regional escalation, because that would that would worry the, 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 the Europeans tremendously. And I think, you know, if, the, if they were to see um, the U.S. administration coming in and, and trying to ignite something wider, they would be concerned. And I think, you know, if this was a Trump administration, that that concern might be alive right now. Um, right. But I don't think that there's a sense that that, that is where Be Biden is headed. I think that there's probably good alignment at a lower level between the Europeans and, um, and the U.S. on this. We see, um, you know, President Macron as ever um, being quite active in, in trying to push this de-escalatory role. Um, you know, that that is one area where I think there's a bit more space for, for Europeans to, to, or where they think they can play a role. Um, you know, if, if the Americans would get involved in a hostage rescue operation, um, you know, could that be contained? Would that have broader implications? Possibly not. I don't think that would really concern the Europeans. Um, if the Americans were to get more forcefully and fully behind an Israeli military operation, against Hamas in Gaza, under current conditions, that might raise some question marks in terms of an ongoing siege, um, in, in terms of a sense of, of some degree of indiscriminate, indiscriminate military attack. So I think that, that that is where there might be some concern. But but my my sense is that there isn't a view that the, the Americans are going to actively join um, Israel in, in, in targeting Hamas. Um, you know, Hannah can probably speak more to, to the Ukraine question. So why don't I leave that to her? Yeah, let me come in here and perhaps um, offer some thoughts uh, regarding how Moscow might look at the prospect of a broader war, because I think there is the idea out there that um, perhaps Russia was behind instigating this attack, aiding and abetting it, or if not, it welcomes an escalation because this is an opportunity to open a quote-unquote second front against the West and the Middle East. Now, my own view is that um, a limited war um, a limited degree of, of instability and violence and tension as it is currently playing out 
could certainly be beneficial for Moscow because as we are already seeing, it is diverting some degree of attention away from NATO's eastern flank and away from the war in Ukraine to Israel. And you've seen Russian pundits writing that this could benefit Moscow because you know resources are finite and if this thing drags out, then Ukraine uh, will get less support uh, from the West. I would additionally pose to you that if if a casualty of this renewed war in the Middle East is uh, Israeli-Saudi normalization or more broadly Israel-Arab normalization, if this process is discontinued, and I guess the jury is still out on that question, it would certainly be welcome from Moscow's point of view because the Abraham Accords and the diplomacy flowing from that Israeli-Arab normalization, I think is really seen in Moscow as an American project. It's a diplomatic effort that didn't really involve Moscow. Again, back to my point about Russian grievances over America monopolizing the Middle East peace process. So I don't think that Moscow would be upset about those talks sort of being put on the back burner. However, I fail to see how it would be strategically beneficial for Moscow if this situation drifts into a broader, Julian used the term, multi-front uh, war in the Middle East. Uh, and there's two reasons for that. First, such a war might well engulf Lebanon and Syria in broader instability. Now, the Russians have a military presence in Syria, a naval port in Tartus and the airbase in Hmaimim. And that presence has been and continues to be vital for Russian power projection into the Eastern Mediterranean, into the Middle East. But it's even a logistics hub for their operations in the Sahel and in Africa. Wagner operations, which for all intents and purposes, look set to continue in whatever post-Prigozhin um, incarnation. And the Russians have been fairly status quo oriented in Syria, I would argue, over the last 20 months since going into Ukraine. Yes, they've harassed US forces more vigorously over the last six months. They've also been um, stepped up attacks in Idlib recently. They've been unhelpful on the cross-border aid. But largely speaking, I think the Russians want calm and quiet in Syria. They don't want Syria to blow up in their faces. If Syria got in, got engulfed in a broader regional war, I'm not sure Russia would have the military bandwidth to deal with that situation. Of course, they might then have to activate their S-400, get involved with the Israelis. I don't think it's a place the Russians want to go. Which brings me to my second point. If this war drifts into a more full-blown confrontation, and it's clear that the Biden administration is coming down hard on Israel's side, I think the Russians, given the geopolitics of the situation, will see no choice but to further drift onto Iran's side. And I'm not sure that's a place Russian diplomacy truly wants to go. There's no doubt that Russian-Iranian relations have qualitatively changed against the backdrop of the war in Ukraine, Russia relying on Iranian drones, stepped up cooperation across areas, but Russia still values its relations with Israel, I would argue, and with the Arab states. It doesn't wanna choose, it doesn't wanna end that balancing act that Russian diplomacy has been walking in the region for a long time now. And so those are the reasons why I think they would not want to, to see the situation as sort of drift into a full full-scale war. Yeah, that's really, Hannah, do you want to remind listeners about 
kind of Russia-Israel relations. I mean, I think we've, in a previous podcast, you and I, and we've covered the Russia-Iran relationship quite uh, in depth, but I wonder if you can give us a reminder about the Russia-Israel relation. So obviously Russia's interested in keeping Israel out or kind of on the fence in the Russia-Ukraine war. Obviously Israel would have significant resources at some point that it could provide to uh, Ukraine in the war, and they want to try to prevent that. They also have that kind of tacit understanding with um, Israel in Syria, where Russia has allowed Israel to strike in and make strikes in Syria. But how how else would you like what what's that, what are the stakes of Russia Israel relations, and why is it being so careful not to jeopardize that relationship? Yeah, that's that's right, Andrea. I mean, you've mentioned important factors here. Russian-Israeli relations drastically improved after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and particularly since Vladimir Putin came to power. There's a not insignificant trade dimension here. There is the deconfliction with the Israeli Air Force over Syrian skies. And there's also a huge Russian-speaking, mind you, not Russian, but Russian-speaking diaspora in Israel. If you go to places like, like Haifa, you'll, you'll note that. And I would also pose to you that there's a, a good sort of personal chemistry between Putin and Netanyahu. So last year, during 2022, I think the relations were more frosty under Yair Lapid. Lapid came out quite with quite some forceful language after the Bucha uh, atrocities. Um, and of course, Ukraine became an irritant in the relationship. But I sort of felt that things got a bit smoother again when Netanyahu came back in, into power. Uh, at the beginning of, of this year, and certainly to ensure that Israel does not provide lethal weapons to Ukraine has been an important sort of factor sort of driving Russian policy towards Israel. And um, of course, these balancing acts became become harder to walk now for Russia in light of this intensified cooperation with Iran, which I think has also gotten the Israelis quite unhappy. Um, not, you know, I mean, it's it's sort of, um, it's it's the intensified defense cooperation in terms of what Russia might give Iran in terms of uh, conventional systems, but also potentially support for Iran's missile and space launch vehicle pro programs, which I think has the Israelis particularly nervous. But it's also the fact that Russia has become less helpful uh, regarding um, um, the nuclear dossier, the restoration of the JCPOA. So certainly there have been irritants, but I think it would be too going too far to argue that in light of these broader geopolitics and Russian reliance on Iran, they no longer care about their relationship with Israel. Yeah, really helpful. Okay, so stepping back, I mean, I mean, clearly there's an interest by all parties not to see this war widen. Julian, what tools, what resources, what capacity does the EU have in order to try to influence the trajectory of this conflict? I, I think, um, you know, the, the Europeans, unlike the Americans, do still have channels with Iran, um, which I think are quite critical here. And we've seen a, a number of conversations happening between the Iranian foreign minister and Europeans. Um, I, I believe that, that, that Macron may have spoke to Raisi. I'm not sure the Iranian president, but 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 clearly there is a European-Iranian channel, which, which the Americans don't have, which they're leaning on um, quite hard to, to, to try and keep things in check and, and, and message. Um, the French, in particular, have a, have a have a kind of influence and a role in Lebanon, which they're using right now, and and, and kind of outreach to to those close to Hezbollah to try and 
press a message that 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 they are um you know that that there is an imperative to to avoid escalation and to really warn i guess of to both hezbollah and iran of what would come um if if there was to be a kind of wider escalation and i think this gets to jim's point and the kind of the the, the deployment of of us naval capabilities to to the eastern med i mean this is very much i think intended to send a message to tehran um but what we're not seeing is the kind of shuttle diplomacy that blinken has been involved in across the region you know the europeans have been rather static we've seen some visits to um to israel the french foreign minister was in beirut today but you know they are not going to, the, to Qatar to try and get the Qataris to use their ties with Hamas to get prisoners released. Um, they are not using the, the you know, outreach to the Saudis and, and others in the same way. So we see a much less active European role at the moment. Um, I think it's been slightly disappointment, disappointing in a sense to, to see them completely kind of give that space to the Americans. Of course, the Americans need to lead here. Um, but it seems that the Europeans could be more actively engaged, not just on the kind of preventing regional escalation, but 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 working out channels to get into humanitarian aid, um, you know, using their, 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 their influence with the Egyptians to open that up, thinking about hostage release questions. I mean, these are all areas where there's a European interest um, to try and push the case forward to, to, to prevent that escalation, not just in the region, but, but in Gaza itself. I mean, I think there is an acute European interest in not seeing Gaza um, fall into to, to even more kind of conflict-ridden despair and, and to see that kind of ticking time bomb be set off. So that there that, that, that would be, in a sense, a, an interest to see Europeans to play a more active role, but we haven't really seen it on the ground across the region yet. If I just follow, well, it's not so much a follow-up, and Jim, I know you've got one, but I think the thing that I'm just so struck by is, you know, thinking back to the beginning of at least the Biden administration, there's this big emphasis on restoring alliances and mending the relations with Europe. Um, but at the same time, the Biden administration came in and as they are doing their kind of strategic planning, the goal for the Russia people and the goal for the Middle East people were to keep those two issue areas quiet so that the United States could focus solely on China. And now we have the Russia war, the Russia invasion of Ukraine. We've got this horrific attack on Israel. We've seen the Nagorno-Karabakh uh, issue flare up. We've seen the tensions with Serbia and Kosovo. So the United States is wanting to stay focused on China and yet kind of the rest of the world, I mean, I know I'm being dramatic, but is is on fire. And I wonder like what that looks like from a European perspective. Is there concern that the United States has been overly focused on China? to the neglect of all of these issue areas and middle powers and smaller countries that now are feeling perhaps emboldened that they can take these challenges on. And Hannah, maybe I'll start with you because I do want to give a plug to your really wonderful piece in Foreign Affairs. Um, I think it's called The Age of Great Power Distraction that you authored with Michael Kimmage. Um, and it gets at this issue. And so I just wonder, again, you're sitting in Europe what does this look like from Europe? And is there does this add to the anxiety that Europeans have about the reliability of the United States if all Washington wants to do is just focus on China? And if I could just add something real quick, um, is it distraction or is it naivete in this administration when it came in? It really just didn't have a realistic view of, of the threats in, uh, in the world and they thought they could do one thing and they were proven wrong. Is it uh, is it just bad luck or is it naivete? Is it distraction? And they just uh, what, what you know, if you could kind of r run on that a little bit, too. 
Sure, uh, Andrea, and Jim, maybe I'll sort of outline what the argument of the piece is that I wrote with Michael Kimmich, and then I'll let Julian judge whether the Europeans are worried or not about the United States. But what we basically do in this essay for foreign affairs is we take the four great powers, the United States, Europe, China, and Russia, and we argue that, of course, international order currently is predominantly characterized by great power competition. You have US-Russia competition, and of course Europe, sorry, US, yeah, US-Russia competition and Europe aligning with the United States. And uh, the Ukraine war is um, is sort of the, the predominant manifestation, this is the climax of that, of that competition. Then you have also US-China, competition. Uh, so potentially the U.S. entering a, an era in which it is um, facing two Cold Wars simultaneously, a U.S.-Russia Cold War. Let's hope it will stay cold, though, of course, in Ukraine, it is already a hot war. And a U.S.-China war, let's hope that stays cold. But certainly also these, these two Cold Wars might be interlocking because Russia and China are increasing their cooperation. So you have great power competition. Um, and with that great power competition, you have the great powers sort of laser focused on certain crises, certain focal points, Ukraine in Europe, and the question over Taiwan and deterring a Chinese military aggression over Taiwan. And what we pose in the piece is that that has also cultivated distraction from a lot of other dormant crises and conflicts around the world, um, both dormant and actually hot. I mean, we, we cite the war in, in Sudan, um, the recent um, um, expulsion of Armenians from, from Nagorno-Karabakh, um, uh, the situation in the Western Balkans, where we just had a flare-up in tensions between Serbia and Kosovo at the end of September, and people are very concerned about the evolution of that situation, and everyone being completely caught off guard by that recent vicious attack by Hamas. I mean, it sort of appeared to come out of the blue for everyone, things again blowing up in the Middle East when, as you posed it, the United States thought that it didn't need to pay all that much attention. So it's it's sort of a distraction that is nurtured by this perhaps laser focus on certain parts of the world and certain conflicts, but also uh, certainly in the case of the United States, domestic politics that just have become so vicious. And, um, and, and in Europe, we'd say it's distraction driven by the fact that, um, uh, you know, states, we say, do not share the same nightmares. They worry about different things in international politics. Not every European country is uh, worried about Ukraine and the Russian threat to a similar degree. Certainly, probably, if you go to Poland, you'll you you know people have different nightmares from perhaps Portugal. We say, and so that fosters distraction, and so that creates a situation internationally where you have this cocktail of great power competition, but also distraction. Uh, which then means that crises emanate from two different sources. On the one hand, that collision of the great powers, as we see in, in Ukraine, but then also passivity and paralysis outside of those hotspots. Um, and certainly it leads to a situation where mid-sized powers, smaller powers, even local actors like Hamas, appear to be punching above their weight and in, in, in engaging in sort of very daring action um, and cannot really be deterred or contained by the great powers. So Julian, how do the Europeans feel? About, I mean, really, I, I mean, I 
increasingly feel like the war in Ukraine was a really important kind of catalyst or a turning point where it has really truly emboldened others to take advantage of a more permissive international environment. And so the jury is out over whether this trend that Hannah was talking about, Nagorno-Karabakh, Serbia, but especially Hamas and Israel, whether that is a is a you know a random confluence of events or rather whether given the war in Ukraine, these um, hostile actors are feeling more emboldened um, because of the strategic distraction. And I, I just like, how does that, how are Europeans responding to that? And certainly, you know, as Jim was saying, there's going to be concerns here in the United States about our capacity to deal with two crises at the same time. We do have already significant stresses on the defense industrial base. And if the war were to broaden in the Middle East, that's going to prove increasingly challenging for us to sustain efforts in both in both areas. And, 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 and these events are taking place in Europe or on Europe's periphery. And so what is the response to Europe? Do you think there's this realization that we're, we've entered into a new era, or I don't know if you can describe the sentiment or the tenor or the tone of some of the discussions that you're picking up on? Sure. Um, look, I, I think there's a couple of things I can say here. One kind of related to the, to the order and one to the U.S. role. Um, there has been a sense in the region and Europe for a while that the US is withdrawing from the Middle East. Um, and I think, you know, that that reflects broader global dynamics and priorities. And, and you know, it, the Ukraine has accelerated the the, the sense of, um, you know, the, the, the withdrawal of, of the US and the emergence of a multipolar regional order where, frankly, you know, whether it's, it's regional states themselves, other non-regional actors like the Chinese coming or non-state actors like Hamas or Hezbollah, all having a more prominent assertive role. And, and you know, this traditional um, European reliance on, on the US to, to, in a sense, shape the regional order um, has clearly gone out the window. And that's something that, that Europeans have accepted for a while. And, and, and they um, recognize the need, therefore, to, to stand up and, and to try and shape the, the region and their own interests in a way that they need. Whether they've been able to deliver on that is another question we can get into. But, but clearly, they are facing a multipolar region um, and they are being squeezed because of it. And, and you know, the, the, the idea that kind of the West has dominant influence as it might have had in the past and by association Europe is clearly no longer true. Um, and that leaves them much weaker. It leaves them much more reliant on regional partners. It allows regional partners to extract um, things from them and to exert leverage that, that might not have previously been the case. On the US role, I mean, it, it's interesting. I think clearly there's a sense of, of kind of European loss at the lack of US leadership. Um, and there are big question marks about the nature of that partnership going forward. And, and you know, you do see questions and being asked in amongst E3 capital, so the French and Germans and the UK, about how they can step up as a group to try and shape interests more, more assertively. And you, you have this kind of strange dynamic with the US, both where... On the one hand, there's been a sense of them getting out, you know, whether it's a sense of a lack of a European sense of a lack of the Syria policy, um, a lack of American en engagement in traditional kind of bottom up stuff to do with civil society, political reform issues like that. Or perhaps, you know, most notably, given events happening now, kind of the complete US disengagement from any pretense of of supporting a peace process between the Israelis and the Palestinians and, a you know, a, a willingness to kind of absolutely fall in line behind the idea that obviously been proven to, to can be completely false that you can make peace over the heads of the Palestinians through, through Israeli regional normalization. So all of this is kind of given a sense of the Americans pulling out. What, what is kind of strange to, I think, is, is also the sense of that when the Americans do come back in, 
the Europeans are no longer really partners of any significance for them. The Americans are much more interested in finding alignment and agreement with Abu Dhabi or Riyadh than, than kind of shoring up a common position with, with the Europeans in advance of that, as might have traditionally been the case. And so you've seen some European angst over kind of negotiations with Saudi Arabia about nuclear enrichment capability, something that the Europeans don't feel that they've been consulted with. You've had some angst about kind of bilateral um, US negotiations or outreach with the Iranians over, over a kind of de-escalatory mechanism over recent months, and again, has somewhat excluded the, the Americans. So on the one hand, the Americans are pulling out, but when they are being pulled back in, um, the Europeans aren't an address any longer. You know, Brett McGurk is flying straight from Washington to Riyadh. He's not stopping in London or Paris, as he might have done in the past. I just, I find that it's so interesting. And, you know, just thinking back to Afghanistan and I mean, all of these other issues where we have an administration that has said that they want to put Europe first and strengthen alliances. And yet, you know, thinking of AUKUS, I mean, all of this sounds eerily familiar, but Jim, I know you want to get in. Um, I want to just, you took my point. That was my point. So I'm just going <laughs> to jump up and down and and just explain that it's uh, great minds think alike. Uh, but I just want to jump up and down and say it really is amazing. Um, Julian, as you were saying that, I was thinking, you know, it's just this rhetoric. It's this rah-rah rhetoric on allies and this and that that we, we've heard for years, frankly. And, I'm, and I'm, I don't want to sound like I'm being super critical of the administration. I know I am. But, but it just seems to be a pattern for years. They're so rah-rah. And it's, uh, we love you guys. And but but I remember the days when we would fly through one of the European capitals and brief allies. And I remember very well uh, allies being part of this uh, in terms of the Middle East and consulting with them on ideas. Oslo. I mean, we, we we've seen those. Play, but but, you know, I, I it has been a thing uh, where um, we're, we're we're still just kind of taking the, the allies for granted more than anything else. Uh, but but if uh, but if I could say, I mean, to, you know, not to make it too easy on the Europeans, you know, th there is also a question of what they're putting on the table here, and I yep. think you know that's that's something that people in Washington are also asking. You know, if we, you know, there's a reason they're going to Abu Dhabi because you know the Emiratis are, are are playing across the region with 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 assets and resources. Um, the Europeans can't have it both ways in a sense of saying, well, look, the Americans can, should consult with us, but but we'll let you guys do the heavy lifting. Um, yeah. So I think I think there is a need for Europeans to recognize and to respond to the fact that this is their southern neighborhood. They're the ones that are going to be most directly affected by migration, by terrorism and so forth. And if they want real partnership with the Americans, you know, they, they're going to have to step up and actually help the Americans relieve themselves of that burden of responsibility. Instead of every time there's a crisis, basically turning towards Washington and saying, look, can you guys manage this for us? I mean, that's also the same repeated story, though, right? I mean, how long have we also heard the Europeans say, you know, we've had the strategic autonomy debates and that Europe needs to do more to act for its in its own interests and in in its own defense? And, oh, you know, when Joe Biden was elected, of course, there was great relief in Europe, all across Europe to have such a transatlantic president come back. But then immediately concerns about the next election and what happens if Trump comes back and this realization that it really could happen. Um, and, uh, you know, for years and years, we hear the Europeans saying that they're going to, you know, they want to build up their own capabilities and be a more um, effective actor in it to advance their own interests. And yet that hasn't come to fruition either. And so, Julian, you know, I mean, maybe with your Middle East focus, why is it that Europe has not been able to play a more capable role. 
And especially knowing, I mean, especially knowing that the United States wanted to do less in the region, right? That's been pretty clear that the United States wants to do less in the Middle East so that it can do better vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Indo-Pacific. And so that presumably created an opening and an opportunity for the Europeans to step up and exhibit more leadership and and take a, a stronger role there. And yet they haven't been able to do that either. And so I wonder why you think that is. And I, just to jump in, Julian, I, 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 I wonder if it's because in the past there were these bigger European uh, characters. I'm thinking of Carl Bildt, uh, people like him that were great counterparts that 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 came to us or we went to them and said, let's do this. And and they brought that value to the table that you're talking about. And I think, you know, Vanderlein, I, I like her and, and I know her, as a matter of fact. And I but I think there's other characters uh, and I guess you could say leadership that seems to be not there to kind of lead the European charge. What do you think? So yeah, I mean, I think kind of the the uh, I'll let you judge the quality of European leadership. Well, why don't I leave, leave it at that? But I think clearly, kind of, you need these kind of charismatic, strong figures to step up and and try and shape the European agenda. Um, Andrea, the kind of the question you ask is the kind of million dollar ha ha question about Europe everywhere you look, right? I mean, why why are they so incapable of stepping up? And I think the Middle East reflects the same story as as you see everywhere. I mean, it, it it's you know the, it's obviously a, a function of disunity. Um, you know, and, and the fact that, that they are continuously kind of um, pulling in different directions. And, you know, we may not have seen this yet on, on, on Israel-Palestine, but certainly if you look at somewhere like Libya, where you've had a kind of a, a French block, an Italian block, a German block, all kind of pulling in different directions, often working against each other. Um, it, it's just a kind of a, a tragic kind of... A, a, example of, of, of how Europe kind of shoots itself in the foot. At the moment on Tunisia, you have some countries pushing for a kind of governance reform agenda, and there are others in the southern Mediterranean whose only concern is migration, and they're quite willing to, to talk with Kaysay, the, the new would-be kind of dictator, and, and, and make whatever deal he wants. So there is a dysfunctionality there. I would also say, um, you know, there is a lack of a European willingness to put real capital on the table. I mean, obviously, the security dimension is critical here. Um, the reasons that regional, the re reason that regional partners don't really take the European seriously in any of these conversations is you don't see European naval patrols um, floating around the Eastern Med or, or, or up up through Hormuz or what have you, and, and that obviously makes a difference because in the end of the day. Um, you know, the Emiratis and the Saudis still look to the U.S. for that security protection in a way that they will never do for, for, for the Europeans. So, so that accounts for something. Obviously, I think the Europeans haven't used their kind of economic capital and their market access and things like that in a really strategic way to, to try and shape the neighborhood. So you have a whole ton of kind of overlapping issues here that mean you don't really have a sense of kind of coherent European strategic purpose, a continued reliance on the US, and very much a kind of reactive positioning to events rather than a kind of forward-leaning willingness to, 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 to try and shape things. And I would just say that, you know, I think the EU um, probably needs to do more to step up and try and shape a coherent European position on this. But, but kind of sadly, um, successive leaders and foreign policy heads in, in Brussels have kind of learned the hard way that um, trying to forge European unity in, in the Middle East is a bit of a poison chalice. So what they basically do is they just sideline the Middle East as, as, a, as a priority for that. And so you see, you know, other than the, the Iran nuclear issue, you don't see these regional issues being really being taken up by Brussels in the way that other issues like, like kind of China or, or Ukraine are. 
Okay. I have a final question, Jim, unless you want to pile one on at the end, but to hear from both of you, from your different perspectives, what does the simultaneity of these two conflicts mean for the respective conflicts that you're watching? So Hannah, like, what are you worried about in terms of the Russia-Ukraine war um, in, now that we've got this additional conflict, hot conflict going on? And then the same, Julian, for you is, you know, if this were, if in the absence of Ukraine, it would be challenging, but now we've got that layered on top with policymakers in Europe so rightfully focused as well on the Russia-Ukraine. So what are your worries and how do you think that the institutions and the leadership are or are not capable of handling both of these at the same time? Sure. And I do, and I do have a final question, but go ahead, Hannah. Sure. Um, I mean, Andrea, I said, I said earlier that I don't believe Russia wants this war to escalate into a broader regional war. If it doesn't come to that, I believe that the bottom line outcome for Russia will be beneficial in terms of its objectives, um, its pursuit of this uh, uh, aggressive war against Ukraine. Why? Because I do think that attention and bandwidth and resources are going to be consumed rightly by Israel, uh, by Israel's needs. Um, and that will, to some extent, um, it will not make the Ukraine issue go away. Absolutely not. Um, but, you know, there will be some shift in attention, perhaps, away from, from Ukraine. Um, I'm also concerned that um, Russia is exploiting this moment in terms of buttressing up its own messaging about this broader geopolitical confrontation that we're finding ourselves um, in. I mean, I already noted that the messaging is sort of trying to tap into grievances over U.S. hegemony and the U.S. siding um, when it so chooses and when it pleases with with um, with other oppressors. And given how the Israel-Palestine issue resonates, not just on what we sort of call the Arab street, but perhaps also more broadly across the global south. I mean, I saw uh, Ramaphosa, the South African president, tweet, I believe, over the weekend, we stand with the people of Palestine. Um, you know, how that issue resonates, I think Russia might well exploit it in order to uh, fuel anti-Americanism and to sort of to make this argument that um, uh, the, the argument about about Western double standards behaving, you know, one way in one crisis and another way in another crisis. And, and you know, we might disagree with that framing, but I do believe that there that that it, it will resonate among certain uh, constituencies. It will further fuel perhaps Ukraine fatigue among constituencies of the global south, where Ukraine fatigue is already, I think, an issue 20 months into this war. And ultimately, I mean, Moscow can hope that this issue, this war and the way it plays out could foster some degree of Western disunity or disunity among those that support Ukraine. And let's not forget that Russia doesn't have many global pressure points uh, buttons to press. What can Russia do? It can foster concern over global food prices, which it is doing, or which it has done by walking away from the Black Sea Grain Initiative. It can foster fear of nuclear escalation in this war. That is something that resonates globally. And it can try to, you know, sort of surgically exploit crises elsewhere in the world 
to undermine the resolve and the stamina in Western countries to support Ukraine. And so I can see a scenario in which this war in the Middle East, whichever way it plays out, sort of plays into this Russian strategic calculus. And Julian, on the other side. So, so two quick points. One is, I mean, echoing a bit what Hannah said. I mean, I, I do think the, the the kind of the concern from a European perspective is, is just that they will, in a sense, disengage from any meaningful engagement in what's happening in the Middle East here in Israel, Palestine, and they will leave this to the Americans and 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 the region to deal with because they don't feel they have the capacity, the space. You know, if if in a certain extent, kind of Ukraine has been the values based kind of embraced by Europe, the the, the Southern Mediterranean has been kind of the transactional response. Um, and you have this kind of binary or, or kind of opposite dynamics at play. And I think, you know, if they don't need to get pulled in, they probably won't. What, one thing though that, that is interesting is, is kind of what Hannah was saying about the global South, though. And I think it, it there's one, you know, potentially interesting dynamic here, which is I think that if... Um, you know, if if as as some of us believe, kind of, um, there is a broader context to kind of Israel Palestine and kind of the, the you know, you know, not excusing whatsoever, but trying to explain the kind of horrific violence by by terror by by Hamas, you know, also gets back to the point that you know that the Palestinians have been living in a prison for Gaza for so long, and you've had an American and a European uh, set of states who have been unwilling to either kind of press a, an increasingly right-wing Israeli government to, to open up a political space and make concessions, or even to kind of engage in a political process in, in terms of the West getting behind something there. It, it's interesting to think about whether kind of um, to the backdrop of Ukraine and this notion of a kind of global rules-based order, um, whether that might kind of exert some pressure on, on both Europeans, but also the US to, to engage in a bit more of a kind of meaningful, balanced way in Israel-Palestine than they may have done in the past, because suddenly this notion that you can just kind of 100% get behind Israel on the broader politics, obviously there's a desire to do that on the security kind of countering terror response, but on the broader politics of a, of a, of a kind of negotiated solution and somehow trying to revive the, the, the two-state solution, um, you know, pressure from the South to offer the Palestinians a bit more may be helpful there and may may kind of push the Americans and the Europeans to do something to try and keep the global south on board and prevent the Russians from from exploiting the space and also the Chinese I mean we haven't talked about the Chinese but I think the Chinese are very actively trying to exploit the situation in Israel Palestine at the moment to also make the, the West look bad and they there's been some kind of breaking it seems but in terms of Chinese Israeli relations on that basis so there is a kind of there will be some pressure if you want to keep the global south on board to pr prove your kind of principled credentials and to maybe re-engage in a process that, that frankly anyone who wants peace and security for Israelis and Palestinians I think needs to recognize is is a prerequisite so um, you know, that that that's a, I don't know if that's, you know, what you were really asking for, Andrea, but it's an interesting thing that could potentially, if one is looking for some positive space, come out of this. No, it's great. And Jim, over to you for the final, the grand finale. The grand finale. Don't I know disappoint. What's that? I said, don't I disappoint. Yeah, oh, I, I won't. I promise. Um, I hope. Uh, so I the final question, and, and, and this isn't um, doesn't need to be a long answer, but. Um, what would you do if you were Zelensky? Because, you know, he had been the flavor of the month for the past year and a half, and, and he was the center of attention. He would address, the, you know, joint sessions of Congress and, and fly around European capitals, greeted. Uh, but now suddenly the attention's elsewhere. <laughs> how do you, with Zelensky, you know, how does he share the pie, if you will? Uh, you know, how does he 
go about uh, trying to keep attention on his problems, but he's got to share the stage. Uh, and he can't look like he was jumping up and down saying, I'm going to scream louder than the Israelis because I want you to listen to me. You know, he's got a problem in how he presents himself. On the one hand, the urgency of his situation. On the other hand, he can't come across looking like he's, you know, my situation is worse than the Israeli. I mean, if you were Zelensky, how do you balance this? What would you do? Hannah. Just a quick thought, and then I'll let, let Julian come in as well. I mean, uh, my concern here is, so what What the Ukrainians have, have tried to do, from what I can see, is really link those two theaters, link the war in Ukraine and link what Israel just suffered from Hamas, saying that there is an evil that is emanating from the same source and sort of linking Russia and, and sort of Iran as the instigator behind Hamas, sort of saying this is, we're, we're fighting the same thing. And um, I think from a Ukrainian point of view, I can perfectly see how it makes sense to link the two theaters in order to, to sort of stay relevant, stay on the agenda as focus shifts towards Israel. And, you know, this is not the first time in history that we've seen that kind of linkage rhetoric uh, being undertaken by leaders and uh, linking certain conflicts together. I mean, uh, you know, when uh, after 9-11, Putin linked his purported anti-terrorist campaign in Chechnya to the global war on terror in order to get the Americans off his back in terms of criticizing what he was doing in Chechnya. So that linkage is not unprecedented. But again, coming back to my earlier point, I do worry that this Ukrainian framing is not going to go down well in broader parts of, of the global south where people say, well, hang on a second. Um, we do not look at what Israel is doing in Palestine or has done in Palestine in the past to come back to, to, to Julian's point in the same way that we look at Russia's war against Ukraine. And so I do worry about how that how that framing is gonna play out for Ukraine sort of going forward. Yeah, I, I would I would say Hannah's completely right there. I, I think, you know, Zelensky came in very quickly um, behind Israel. Um, and there's obviously a kind of a, a natural moral kind of sense of solidarity in the response to those terror attacks. But, but given some of the broader context, I, I do wonder whether that kind of full embrace of Israel um, may, may kind of uh, hurt him in the global south, given the, the kind of some of the contradictions that seem to be at play there. And the fact that, you know, there are some even in Ukraine now and, and forget who it was but but a leading kind of civil society person i saw on twitter from ukraine basically actually being much more sympathetic and kind of willing to equate what had been happening in his in palestine historically with some of the things that are happening um in in, in ukraine so i think you know um squaring that circle it will be a difficult path for, for zelensky to navigate as he as he looks for that important kind of global south support um, moving forward, especially if there is a sense of maybe kind of a, a, a declining kind of Western focus on that and, and actually whether or not that kind of opens up space for the Russians to do more on Ukraine via the global south. I think it's ever more important to, for, for Zelensky to kind of solidify his, his, his broader global support with the global south. Very good. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, this has really been wonderful. And I mean, I'm, in some ways, you know, I agree in large part with Zelensky's framing though, like that oh, I, my own view is again, that a lot of this is originating with Russia and not that it's a direct catalyst or directly involved and it didn't precipitate the war, you know, Hamas in its attack on Israel. But I think by invading another country and other countries able to watch that there's a whole set of countries that sit on the fence um, and, and don't haven't decided to take a side in this, 
I think it just creates a, a really different international environment that I think other actors are going to look to exploit. And again, I, it's hard to know if we're just kind of caught up in the heat of the moment and the, all of the emotion with the Hamas attack on Israel. But to me, it feels like a really important turning point, looking back to Putin's invasion of Ukraine, that this has been a real catalyst, like a step change, and that we're now kind of living in a different world where actors can can act with impunity and not suffer significant costs because Russia hasn't indeed found itself entirely isolated and it continues to be able to wage its war in Ukraine with lots of friends like Russia and China and North Korea and all of the countries in the Middle East and global South that have sat on the fence. So in many ways, I, I mean, I do see it as a, as a part of the same fight as Zelensky has framed it, but I, I mean, your point is hundred percent correct that that doesn't mean that it resonates with large parts of the globe, but um, all right. Well, thank you again for taking the time to do this. It's a it's a hard conversation to have. I think we're still all grappling um, with changes that are happening extraordinarily quickly. And so I appreciate you taking the time for, to share your expertise and your views. And um, until the next time. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.